Hello, this is Brian Scordato, and welcome to the Idea to Start Up podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. Tacklebox is an accelerator program for pre-product founders with full-time jobs. Applications are open for our July 15th cohort that is in New York City. Just apply at gettacklebox.com. Okay, on to the good stuff. Today, we're talking burritos, specifically the best burritos I've ever had in my life. We've got the founders of Dos Toros on the podcast, Leo and Oliver, two brothers from the West Coast who brought mission-style burritos to New York and now to Chicago too. This story is a great one. Leo and Oliver knew what a great burrito needed to taste like, but they didn't know a ton else about starting a restaurant. In the ultra-competitive New York City food market, they turned this idea for a mission-style burrito into 17 locations, a fast-growing catering business, and they've somehow kept quality and culture consistent and amazing. There are tons of lessons in here on testing products, building a brand, evolving the business as you grow, on saying no to things that it really seems like you should say yes to, and a lot of others. I hope you all enjoy and have a great week. So we're here with Leo and Oliver, the founders of Dos Toros. I am super excited to talk to you guys today. I'm excited to hear the story of how this got going. Um, so for people who don't know, what is Dos Toros? Mm, yes, that's all that question. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> uh, Dos Toros is a uh, San Francisco Bay Area inspired taqueria that is very simply trying to bring high level burritos to New York City and now Chicago, as well as tacos, quesadillas, bowls. Totally. Uh, and, uh, and do it in a way that is really like premium and, and meaning best in class and also with like strong sustainability and a, hopefully a strong culture and a really compelling brand. Awesome. Love that. So where I want to start is where the idea came from. So you guys, it looks like you started around 2009. So I'd love to know what's going through your heads and you're, you look at the landscape and you're like, there needs to be a burrito place or yeah, tell me, tell me what happened. I mean, I really started uh, with a passion, a deep passion for uh, consuming whole burritos. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as Leo said, yeah, we grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, eating at one specific place in Berkeley, California. What's it called? It was called. It is called Gordon Taqueria. Nice. And we've got several locations in the uh, East Bay in San Francisco. And um, really, we just you know we were eating this stuff three plus days a week for you know, 15 plus years. Mm. And uh, it dawned on us, I think fairly early on that we, at the very least, we couldn't get this kind of stuff, these kind of burritos uh, outside of the Bay Area, um, let alone, you know, California. We, we were really just, uh, we love the food and we, we couldn't find anywhere else. That's where it initially kind of to which, which struck us as a huge problem. Mm. Because when you're eating at a place three plus times a week, you can't live without it. <laughs> and like, well, how I would like to travel and live elsewhere. How will we do that? I'd like how does somewhere. one do that? Right. Coming from the Bay Area and with such an intense withdrawal of burritos. And you know, every trip we'd go on, like get the last meal before we left, which would be a burrito. <laughs> the first meal, you know, upon return would be a burrito. And it wasn't just us. We talked to a, a right. lot of people from the Bay Area. That is kind of the thing when they have been living away or been on vacation for an extended period, the first meal they have when they come back is typically uh, a burrito or you know, a taqueria. Totally. <laughs> totally. So uh, super passionate about the cuisine and really hardcore guests and, and connoisseurs and enjoyed debating the finer points, you know, of this taqueria versus that taqueria and the carne asada versus the pollo asada versus the chili verde, the steaming of the tortilla versus the grilling. The, the individual, you know, uh, employees versus each other mm. at Bordo Taqueria, where it's like, oh, this guy rolls really well, but he's a little heavy hand on his cold, the cold items, but he doesn't drain his well, but he's got really nice. Whatever, you know, all the different kind of points that you could dissect. I really enjoyed thinking about that and, and consuming burritos. And it just seemed like, a, you know, it kind of more and more became apparent that if you could just teleport a good Bay Area Taqueria to New York City or any other city, it would do great because there's nothing else like it. And actually, and you could do great even just selling 
burritos to West Coast ex- expats. Mm-hmm. You would, I mean, hopefully other people would get excited about it, but like at least you know, in New York City, there's so many Californians. Like you can just speak to that community. Sure. So you're in New York, and what were you guys doing at the time when you were like, all right, let's let's maybe give this a shot? So we we moved out to New York uh, in the fall of 2008. Uh, with this specific goal and plan in mind. Oh, really? Cool. Yes, we actually we took a trip out to New York for a couple of weeks. We made a list of like 45 Mexican restaurants we wanted to try. Uh, we made it to almost all of them. And then at the end of the trip, I actually saw one of them was hiring. And I took, a jo- I took a job, told them I had to go back to California for four days, get my life, my, back, my bags, and then I moved out to New York in that moment. Wow. So we moved out here with the plan to, uh, to open the taco. Right, and part of what we wanted to do on that kind of tour of all the best-regarded current taquerias in New York City was to just understand if maybe someone was doing this already. Maybe there were some really great places that weren't doing so well, and thus we should not pursue this because it's not working. And uh, yeah, we just didn't we didn't feel like we had any burritos that were on the level. And then it was a question of maybe it's not possible. Maybe there's a reason why. We can't get. Right. We, were, we were trying to convince ourselves not to do it on some level because there, there's a lot of good reasons for us not to do this at this stage. We're like, you know, we have zero experience in food service, either one of us. We're not even like, you know, home like chefs like at all, really. No family background, right? It's just there's nothing um, except kind of this observation and, and passion, consumer passion. And so we're like, maybe someone's doing it. And it's really good, or maybe there's a reason. You know, Relating to like tortilla availability or avocado availability or things like that, um, and and kind of just started to feel like there wasn't any good reason that it wasn't happening. And, and there were even places that were saying you know, mission style burritos. They were saying using the right language, but then they would kind of it wasn't a mission style burrito. It wasn't, it wasn't close. Like, it wasn't even like wrapped in foil, you know, in, in a couple of cases or just big, you know, steps, kind of tip offs that it wasn't the same. So we couldn't think of any. Ultimately, there was no good reason. And I think that's a, a business truth that often you maybe you think that someone's hasn't done something because it's too hard or, or, or whatever. There must be a good reason. There must be a good reason. There's not. And, uh, and again, it was really the thesis was if this taqueria we eat at in Berkeley was in New York, it was going to kill. Right. And I think maybe also part of the reason that it hadn't happened was that the people that were most in position to observe the issue were not well positioned to actually do something about it. Mm. You know, like some, you know, young urban professional who's like going from coast to coast and it's like, man, I used to have great readers in San Francisco and I don't have them in New York. Isn't the right person to typically... Well, or maybe they don't, they don't think they are. But maybe right. They could be. So yeah, maybe that's why it happened. That's a super interesting point. And we get a lot of founders who have a huge opportunity cost where it's like, they see an opportunity, they're a lawyer, they've been a lawyer for 10 years, they have a big salary. They see an opportunity, say, in tacos or whatever. Yeah. But it's like, is this really like the, that leap is so huge from saying, all right, I'm going to get rid of this, you know, six figure salary and go after this idea. Um, so I want to know about that. So, so you were like, okay, this is interesting. There's nothing here that fills the need that we know needs to be filled. What are your, you haven't built, you mentioned you haven't, you have no experience in the restaurant industry. What, what were the first steps where you're like, all right, let's figure this out. How do you go about that? Sure. We started cooking. That's it. And if you're going to start a food business, start by cooking things <laughs> and seeing whether or not people like them. Uh, yeah, we hosted a, a big kind of dinner party. Uh, we were kind of cold on it. We were going back and forth on whether this was even too crazy of an idea to pursue. And then uh, we, just went, we went online and just got a bunch of recipes for whether it was rice or guacamole or a, a chili verde pork. Right. And then we went to this... Uh, really kind of authentic grocery store and got these specialty uh, Mexican items, invited 25 friends over, cooked this big feast. And uh, several of, a few of our friends, were, one of one of them in particular said it was the best Mexican food he'd ever had. Really? Yes. I think he was being a little generous to us <laughs> at that moment. Well, it's what we needed here. It's what we needed here. <laughs> Certainly, the consensus was like, these are bad. <laughs> it was more that it was a little better. But our, our, our friends like us. You know? That's true. But like... Uh, clearly, like they weren't bad; they were pretty good. And, like, and first one, you know, before we've done all this tinkering that we know we're going to do, and it just gave us the belief that maybe you know we can actually wrap our heads in. It's so complicated. Right? You're starting to have a little affirmation that this thing might work. 
you host this party. By the way, we didn't, I don't think we mentioned in the intro that you guys are brothers, which I think is really interesting. Right. I, I imagine that. a lot of the listeners could already believe <laughs> that. Maybe. So I want to ask that question first before we get into more of the restaurant stuff. Um, we've had, through Tacklebox, we've had founders who are married. We've had founders who are uh, brothers, brother, sister, that sort of thing. Um, how do you think that dynamic helps or hurts? Give it and take it. No. Um, I think we've been incredibly fortunate that A, um, we've been lucky enough to be successful and open multiple units. And, and that's kind of been the backdrop and framework that we work in. And so it's all positively framed um, because things are going well. But also I think there's a deep uh, respect for each other and for the differences and similarities we share in terms of ways of thinking, problem solving, um, a little bit of a yin and a yang. Okay. There's a lot of interactional enjoyment, I would say. Uh, a lot of humor and laughing. We had a really good relationship before starting those tours. Like, that's a good sign. Like, I, I wouldn't think that starting a business together with your sibling, if you're not actually that tight, gonna, like, gonna, save them. it's going to make it like groovier right. between you. So that was good, a good sign. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's nice. So when, you know, as a sibling, like you have this exact same point of reference. Having grown up in the same place, in the same family, in the same house, in the same neighborhood, going to the same places, you just have so many shared points of reference that you, I think, it's easier to have a shared point of view or like a clear kind of vision that, you know, seems really sensible to both of you. We weren't eating at different neighborhood topics. <laughs> 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 That's right. The same We're synchronizing kind of our <laughs> point of view on that. And then also, uh, I, you know, you can you don't have to be so diplomatic with your sibling, sure. or you kind of just disagree more quickly, or or not worry that it is a disagreement is going to lead to a rift in the same way. Um, so you can just in some ways move faster. Sure, the trust thing's going to be huge. I mean, that's when people look for a co-founder, and it's someone you had you know haven't had a previous relationship with. I mean, it's tough to get to that level of trust that you obviously have. It's a good point. That's, and yeah, we haven't, even, we haven't even thought about that, but it's enormous. It's right? so deeply implicit. And there's stuff that you end up putting stuff in place to assure trust, or even controls. if you're not conscious, the controls that you're not even aware you're doing. They just have a time cost and right. a, you know, whatever, intellectual cost. Yeah, sure. Tons of cognitive overhead with the founder that you're not really sure about. Cool. So let's jump back to where it's now 2008, maybe 2009, and you. Tell me, talk through the decision to open up a store, open up the first physical location. Is there anything we skipped between like the dinner stuff and the first location? Yeah, a lot there. Okay, so I got that job at the local talkery, which unfortunately is no longer business. But um, and then Leo moved out a few months later, and from there it was a, it was a combination of all of the different facets. Uh, of starting a small business and starting a restaurant. So whether it was uh, getting our legal documents and our LLC form and all that, or doing a lot more cooking. We, I mean, we did recipe testing every day. And that was the constant. We were just constantly tweaking recipe. And I remember going to the Essex Street Market to buy more pork to try to crack the code on our carnitas. Right. And you actually had a, time, had a job at that time. And I would come another back. Job, yeah. At another time, I would trim the pork and do my whole thing. We would... And I come back from work. But Kearney just takes about four hours. Slaving away over the Kearney to come in just like one little bite. It's too dry. And you kind of sitting there shaking. Every day is happening. <laughs> a month. Yeah. I mean, certainly we did a lot of testing. And, 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 and part of, you know, I think our obviously being inexperienced helped us in a number of ways. And one of them is we didn't have any pride of creative vision. Or, or in, in terms of like, oh, I know the best way to do to make beans. It's like, no, we don't know anyway. Like, we'll just try try things and be scientific and change one variable at a time, and keep notes on what worked and what didn't, and then try a different variable and just keep tinkering with it, and and not think that you know we had some artistic insight, and also yeah. not not, not feel the need to put our own stamp on it. Mm -hmm. like, we're going to make this different than anyone's ever done it before. We, we didn't. Feel that need to kind of no uh, no sacred cows right except for our carne asada which is beautiful so a ton of recipe testing every day but then yeah all the other steps the legal formation I mean speaking of legal formation I mean that was 
something that got the ball rolling on a whole bunch of intros in the industry for us was all over went to a, it was like how to pass your first uh, pre-opening health inspection. Like that's probably put on by New York City. Put on right. It was the NYC Business Express, which is this really cool organization down. I think it's, it's morphed now into something. I think it changed, but it, 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 there are you know governmental services there to kind of help you get the ball rolling on navigating local kind of. And and, and this what the speaker. So the speaker was uh, a lawyer here in New York that does a lot of hospitality work. His name's David Helbron. Shout out, mm-hmm. and uh, his firm Helbron and Levy, and they've they've grown a lot over the past ten years as we have. Uh, and he, uh, but he was giving a talk, a free talk at this uh, class downtown in front of you know, twenty people. So I figured this guy's probably he's potentially the kind of in the price point we're looking for. Hmm. And uh, he was really, he was really sharp, and I'm totally on top of it. And so after the class, I approached him, and he uh, represented us. And it's a pretty small network of, of kind of up and coming uh, restaurant tour people. And and he introduced us to our first accountant. Introduced us to our general contractors. Huge. Yeah. Um, and kind of the whole ecosystem started with that uh, that class. I think. Right. And, it's, and in a lot of cases, these things aren't super Googleable, especially supply chain stuff. Well, that's, yeah. But like, like you know, search, search like awesome, you know, restaurant contractor in New York City, maybe more so now, but you know, in 2008, it's just a lot of these kind of B2B kind of industry players weren't really thinking about their online presence and so you couldn't just figure it out from your computer. Right. And I, I assume there's a lot of stuff like that. It's certainly a lot, it's probably a through line with like exciting areas to get into business or that they're not easily Googleable. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's, it's, an, it's not a fully built out opportunity. I think we're probably changed quite a bit since we started. Probably has, maybe it's right. a stray thought. But anyway, yes, uh, built that network of, of kind of people and target them in place and all the while working on products, working on um, design, uh, kind of the logo design, the menu. I don't know why we're on the playlist. Playlist, a lot of time on the playlist, a lot of time on um, just like textural elements, like you know, the tables and, and chairs and, and artwork and lighting, and just thinking about everywhere making notes, everywhere like with a, a tape measure in our pocket, like measuring mm. like table, a lot of time measuring table dimensions, uh, chair height, chair height. Uh. Right, well, dude, this table, you know, it's good, you know, for if I feel a little far away from you, like getting that table, that's. 32 inches, it's like we actually are more into the 24 inch, more intimate, huh. or 25 inch. Sure, and then if you want the table height to be you know, 29 inches off the ground, not 27, so it kind of gets the, right. things like that. Huh. Yeah. And, uh, and just making notes and taking pictures, kind of building this kind of mood board of like aesthetic inspiration. And I think that was something that has been a difference maker for those stores and our just attention to aesthetic detail. And you know, our, yeah. mother, our mother's an artist, a visual artist. Hmm. We just, she has a really strong sense of style and I think. I rubbed off a little bit, hopefully, when you just are thoughtful and paying attention to design and style as a really core part of the brand. And how things make us feel. Right, feelings. And that's the other thing is like being, you know, our own core customer, and we still feel that we are, really just, we can refer to ourselves a lot. I mean, not that we're, we want to hear different viewpoints and, 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 you know, work it out, but we still think of ourselves as like our kind of core customer. And so, you know, anything we're thinking about, should we do this, should we do that? Is this the right song? Is this the right web color of leather for the you know stool? It can, it can we can just refer to our own kind of feelings. Anything to touch the customer, yeah, right? And I, I definitely want to get back to that. And I I remember I mean, we spoke about this before. I live right near the first location, and I used to go there like 2010. I think was when I started going. Maybe tw- maybe like early 2011. And I remember noticing those details. And I mentioned I remember there was a picture of you guys up on the wall. Which I thought was cool and very different. Like everything felt a little bit different. Like everything thought was way more thoughtful than what I thought the alternative, which was probably Chipotle. And it was like night and day. And I remember thinking, like, okay, this is my place. And I've since gone nine thousand times. But that's awesome. Um, <laughs> that's the dream. And like that's the, the whole goal is that like someone thoughtful like you is coming interacting with those Toros and, and you know appreciating all the kind of things that we're thinking about. And like, yeah, this is these guys are these are my people. I, I get they get me. Yeah, and, and so that came across, and that's I, I want to get into that how hard that's got to be because first I want to talk about um, before we get there. I was getting anxious just hearing all the things that you were trying to put together at that time between like 
trying to figure out recipes, trying to figure out legal stuff. You mentioned that it's tough to find gatekeepers in interesting industries. I think that's totally still the case. So you had a gatekeeper to all the legalities around restaurant finding the space, all of that. But then I'm sure there were gatekeepers to supply chain stuff too. So you got to get all this stuff and it's going to go bad. And there's like, someone's got to cook it. Like there's so much there. So I'm wondering how you prioritized early days. Little, a little pro tip on supply chain stuff. If you go to a specific restaurant and you have something that you think is just out of this world, you can just kind of camp out outside of that restaurant <laughs> until the truck comes the next time and see which truck it is and which company it is. Wow. And you can just call them up and uh, you know, ask for the supply. Love that. That's true. Hanging out and, and just for a, a few hours. Loitering. <laughs> <laughs> Heavy loitering. Also, loitering can be a nice way to learn stuff. That's right. And you know, site, site selection too. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. should we take this, you know, piece of real estate? Like, just hang out for a few hours. You can get a little clicky app on your iPhone and just click the number of people that walk by, or I'm sure, or the number of people to walk into the next door restaurant, restaurant mm-hmm. and just get a sense by of hour. kind of what that yeah, by hour, what, what you might expect if you're trying to build a profile. And yeah, real estate site selection is huge. We looked at I don't know forty locations before we got. We were coming to Square at our first location. Needed to be in the Lower East Side. Hmm. And nothing against the Lower East Side, but, but you know, when we first came to the city, we, it was, everything was so new and kind of the traffic patterns and residential versus business versus kind of where, where the subways are and how important those arteries are. Right. We learned a lot. For sure. I mean, we, we saw so many locations that were really bad that when we finally were shown our eventual location by Union Square, people, it's funny, people later were like, how did you have the vision on that location? Because Fourth Ave was coming were grungy back when you opened there. We were like, it was 10x better than any location we saw. We also didn't know that 4th Ave was considered kind of grungy. Just like the fact that you could see Union Square from the location was like so much more just high quality from foot traffic. We looked at some terrible locations that we convinced ourselves we wanted terribly. Hmm. And then we went for them and we lost out. We bid against (laughs) other tender tenants that we went for and then ended up not getting them. And that ended up potentially being Right. There's huge um, swings of luck at every turn of like, yeah, not getting things we wanted to turn out to be lucky, with, especially with real estate. So yeah, I was, I was fortunate. And, and this was partly also enabled by the fact that it was kind of a recession right then. This is 2008, the whole whatever subprime crisis has occurred and there just wasn't a ton of action looking into good real estate. And so a, a landlord would take a chance on an unproven operator like us. Yeah, the real estate was, was lagging kind of the general economy. Uh, the stock market a little bit. And so, but when we were really earnest looking at sites in early 2009, was like the best time. Right. And rent was reasonable. I mean, that was lucky also. I mean, you obviously you have to try, you have to take a chance to have opportunities to get lucky, but there's been a lot of good fortune. Right. I should add that like then, so coming up with the opening, like it just became, we suddenly realized like, oh, all the design, legal and, and and just uh, restaurant equipment and, and supply chain and the whole thing. And then we started hiring people. We're like, oh my gosh, this is just a people. Totally about people. Huh. And it just hadn't fully dawned on us that like, that was what we were actually going to spend almost all of our time working on after the open. It was just like hiring and training and connecting with and um, motivating our, our team and building, building a culture with the team. It just, that was kind of a, Right. Surprising. You have exactly. sawdust everywhere to like having your first orientation where everyone's standing around. It was like, hi guys. <laughs> it was incredibly exciting. And, uh, and I think we've been incredibly fortunate. We've been able to find uh, amazing people, amazing talent and, and largely retain. So I'm curious how you created that initial playbook for culture. Cause it sounds like you were in this to make really good burritos and you've done that. But that's like one part of your product. The product is like the space, the music, the design, the people who are serving you the burrito, which is, I, I'm assuming, not the highest paid people in your business, but they are the ones who are like client facing. I'm curious as to like what the role of a founder or a couple of founders, couple of co-CEOs when you're in almost a service industry, what, what does that role look like? First and foremost, I feel that you and I are just kind of humanists. To the core, I and mean, I think we are kind of hospitalitarians. We begin with, we just care about uh, people and making sure that you know our, everyone on our team feels uh, included and feels safe, and that we're right there with them. And you know, in early days, we were in the restaurant all of the time. Um, right. If you're 
if they're working and being kind, that takes you a hell of a long way. For like an early day culture building, like I, it's funny we, we didn't use the word culture for the first you know two years or whatever. We just were just, just you know we're just in there working and being nice to our guests and to our team members, and like that goes such a long way. Another pro tip: mm. if you start a business, whenever you go into your office or one of your retail locations, whatever it is, say hi to every person. Right, which just is like seemingly nice. more than people. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean maybe that's a food service specific thing, but I just, don't think so. We just heard a lot that, you know, that a lot of places were just, that people didn't feel particularly valued or kind of seen as human beings. And, and I don't so, think those founders were so happy either. You know, it's like, it's, it's just was not about, not people first. Right. And you have to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we were in there for sure, just every, every day, you know, for, certainly for the first period of time and just... There's no substitute for that. Obviously, in, from every perspective, right? Connecting with the guests, understanding what's working, what's not working, iterating on stuff, like the little things. I just remember the first time we had a little bit of a traffic jam by the cashier because our, our napkin dispenser was kind of up there. And we were talking, we were like, oh, you know, we should just add another napkin dispenser by the back area. And then and it just, it was this little tiny thing for the guest experience, but it was like, oh, we can just continually change little details right? as much as we want. Because when the guests sitting by the front door have to go back to the cashier to grab more napkins, right. that's it, a bummer. Yeah, that's a big for bummer them. for everybody, for us, for them, for the guests, guests getting them to go back. And uh, you know, nothing is too small in terms of making improvements mm-hmm. uh, to the business and to the flow. One thing in terms of that culture is, uh, I think, a, a huge, huge part of it, and pro- I think the foundation is the product. Mm-hmm. And for us, you know, we started the business because of the passion for the burrito. And that really was kind of the center point, and, and that was, you know, the reason why we existed, and why you know, one of the main reasons why we exist. Uh, and that kind of unifies everyone's focus. Our guests get really excited about that product and that thing we are focused on, and they give that energy to our crew members and to our team. Mm-hmm. And then there's a kind of a pride and excitement that comes on our side, and it's this feedback loop uh, that all comes from, I think, obsessive focus on and passion for. Product. Right. It's funny. You, you read like Simon Sinek or you, you, know, you start with why. And it's like, it's a profound truth to that. Like, you know, there should be a, a bigger reason and, and, you know, that informs everything. But like obsessing over products is, can almost get forgotten. It's like that creates so much momentum and energy for the team, for the guys. Yeah. Totally. And just start with what? <laughs> right. And what? And what? Right. So you launch, you guys open the space. In Union Square, and I, I had a professor in business school who I was obsessed with the restaurant space, and I was wanted to start a company, and I was like going to start something in the food space. And I went to this guy who was like our entrepreneurship guy in business school, and I told him my idea, and it was it was a pasta idea with a bunch of pastas and a bunch of sauces, and you sort of like mixed and matched, so you could sort of back each side of them. And he was like, you know how you make a, a small fortune is you take a big fortune and you open a restaurant, and, and even looking at your Location, as I've watched it for the last seven years or whatever, there have been small, similar-ish restaurants that have like popped up and gone, and it's like six months at a time. And you're packed; they're empty. And so I'm curious as to how you got customers interested early on, because it's tough for me to even try something. So how did you think about saying like we're going to get someone to stop at Dos Toros who's never stopped there before and turn them into a repeat customer? Oh, no, it's a couple things. <laughs> So, I mean, location, right? The, the cliche of location, 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 you know, it's for a reason, right? Uh, the location you chose was really powerful and there's a ton of people walking by and there's foot traffic. And at a certain point, if you have enough foot traffic, some people will just walk in without even knowing what you do. Um, so, kind of that helps a lot. And uh, I had a friend at uh, Thrillist, um, is a you know, big kind of website, blog, email kind of recommendation engine. And then, you know, then they, they gave a plug for us. So when we first opened, we were like, hey, check out this place. So like, that's, that's huge. That's leveraging personal, you know, connections and, and, and friendship to kind of help you like get the word out. Um, I mean, we didn't actually have a sign for the first couple months because our sign maker absconded with our deposit and like closed and left the country or something, which was terrible. That was not cool. It was so rough. Um, but even before we had a sign, people kind of just moseyed in. Not that many. But some, like some did. We had a vinyl on the front door before that was cool. Right, right. <laughs> so location, a little bit early marketing. Certainly we 
became keenly appreciative of the power of PR in the early stage. Mm-hmm. Just wow. like various blogs that we kind of got mentioned on and, and we could see it having an impact. And then specifically a New York Times uh, review that we were fortunate to receive a few months after opening. Came out of nowhere. It just happened. And we kind really? of, uh, it was, the writer was, uh, he lived in the Bay Area for 10, 10 plus years. Hmm. And then um, I actually played soccer with him. Oliver Strand. Strand. Yeah. I think we shared our first name. And, uh, shout out, he's the man. And uh, he came in and, and I guess it was his fourth or fifth visit and then he came up to the counter instead of walking out after he finished his burrito. He was like, hey, uh, just so you guys know, I'm going to write you guys up. I think this is awesome. I miss my Bay Area taquerias. And he gave us this glowing view. Um, and we were like, yeah, cool, right on, man. Oh, yeah, that'd be, that's uh, awesome. But we kind of didn't fully appreciate the power. And then he wrote, you know, that article came out, whatever, a couple weeks later. January 6th, 2000. January 6th, thank you. <laughs> and like it came out and the next morning. No, 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 that, the morning. So we never had anyone ever waiting for us to open. Right. So every morning we had to come in, we start cooking stuff, open up, get the team excited. And then we'd walk in front, flip the open and close sign, and just kind of like walk back and wait for some guests. Wait to see what happens today. Right. And uh, that morning, we went to flip the open close sign, and there was a crowd of like 15 or 20 people just kind of waiting wow. for us to open. I was like, what are you guys doing? What's going on, guys? Yeah, throw it. And then we read the New York Times book and try the burritos. We're like, oh. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, you know, everyone get ready. Subsequently, just basically doubled our business immediately. A day. A day. And, and didn't stop, which was super amazing. Super stressful. <laughs> uh, also, we're like, we were just continually running out of tomato salsa in particular. It kept happening. Just couldn't make another. And uh, we just, it was, it, you know, it's, it was wonderful. But, but I'd say, you know, I think it was two months to kind of like catch our breath and have any real expectation or ability to handle that kind of volume without, you know, melting down. Hmm. So that was incredible. And it certainly, yeah, PR has been a big role. I mean, we've worked with a couple of PR agencies over the years and just, we're really always trying to stir the pot with that. Mm. And just to talk back, uh, talk about the location piece again for a second. I think uh, a lot of businesses can make the mistake of, of thinking that they're kind of more special than they are, or that people will go out of their way to interact with uh, their business. And you know, we think we're awesome. We think we make the best burritos in the galaxy. We try to. But you know, we still try to take locations that are as convenient as possible for our guests, so we can meet them where they want to be met. Um, and that's never going to, I think, never going to go away. It's interesting because a lot of our, a lot of companies we work with are tech products. They're digital, and that's a thing that we've found over and over again. Is no customer, especially early customers, are going to set a single foot outside of what they do. Like what you did last Tuesday is what you're going to do this Tuesday, and so you have to kind of like meet them exactly there and try and hijack them somehow. Like they're not going to go try something new unless it's so easy for them to do so. Um, so that's interesting. On the tech thing too, I'm curious about metrics early on and any like goals that you tracked weekly. Or correct me if I'm wrong, but I think of Dos Toros is probably a restaurant that relies on someone like me going there a couple times a week for a long time. So how did you track or, or did you track if there were like repeat users, if there were loyal customers, if these were all new customers? And, and did that even matter, I guess? It obviously matters <laughs> more than anything. Uh, there is, is uh, attracting and maintaining, creating regulars, uh, which you know you do and, and you try to do by just uh, never compromising on quality, ever. Oh, so again, we're there every day. Every minute, like you just recognize people, really, totally. But like in terms of like our digital, like how we were tracking, kind of tracking loyalty. No, I mean we we had, we had no actual data on you know what percentage of people return or are our regulars. We we know just from seeing our guests that you know more than half of them we've seen before and, and, our, and our regulars. So like we're taking a contrarian approach, to kind of <laughs> I guess <laughs> to this way. I mean, certainly we just we've had a lot of opportunities to kind of dig into data and we just have. Not wanted to spend time on it unless we felt it was actionable. Mm. So, like, you know, there's been moments where, like, someone's like, hey, well, I analyze this thing for you. And it turns out, what, you know, of, your, of the chicken tacos that you sell, 60% are actually women, 40% are men. And we're like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's wonderful. That's, that, that is an, a, an interesting, like, conversation point, but we don't know what to do with that data. And we've just been really, really focused on, like, delighting the guests to the exclusion of basically everything else. I mean, even like 
you know, food cost early on, we kind of like didn't have that kind of figured out or I don't know, like kind of staffing or there were so many things that we kind of didn't understand kind of the importance of or, or just weren't prioritizing and still kind of fundamentally we deprioritize everything to the, what the guest experiences, mm-hmm. what they're tasting, what they're seeing and, and, and what they, how they feel. And we just the delight, delighting the guest is always the priority to an almost, you know, to a significant extent. So very significant. Right. Um, so that was our data point. The mm. life like Bhutan, you know, you've heard about the country Bhutan trying yeah. to measure like gross national happiness product. And like yeah. GNH was our, our big metric for sure. Gross national happiness. Yeah. Like Bhutan. We're like Bhutan for burritos. That's right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I love that. So then that sort of makes the next part really interesting because you then start to grow. And you're like, all right, we've got one location. It's time to open up more. And what was that decision like? Was it sort of a gut feel thing or were you always scouting locations and one opened up or how does that, how do you know that this is working well enough to start spreading yourselves thin? I mean, so again, the place we grew up going to had multiple locations. So we felt like, okay, you can do a, a few of these. And that was kind of always the idea was, hey, maybe we can, you know, be like that in New York City and have, you know, five locations or, or more, who knows? And right. we had that in mind. And yeah, really starting with that uh, that New York Times review that we got, you know, the business started to work essentially, right? And you had lines of guests, and we're seeing a lot of the same faces. Um, and you know, I think a few months after that is when we realized, okay, I guess we should start. It wasn't like, okay, let's do five locations in 2011. I mean, that was never kind of the thought. But we weren't rolling anything out ahead of kind of proven demand, right? But once proven, once proven demand happened, you know, and sustained for a couple of months, we thought, okay, this is real. We immediately began kind of thinking about how we might open another one, started looking at real estate. Although it took us like, a year to find the second location. Yeah, and we love, still love uh, Father Demo Square demo. demo. I don't know. It's uh, right there at 6th Avenue and Bleecker and Carmine. There's a little spread of Joe's Pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, is right there, and that's uh, where our second location is. And we just wanted to be on the park. We felt, you know, we were next to Union Square with our first location. It was also the other kind of end of the NYU world, true. And you know, I mean, we felt like college students were really an important part of our guest base. Coming from Berkeley, you know, just all like college kind of cuisine. Mm-hmm. And then you know, the Union Square subway station. There's the West Fourth Station right there. It felt uh, really good. And so that took a long, a longer than we would have liked. Um, but yeah, that location opened in spring of 2011. The first one was October 2009, the West Village was spring of 2011, and then the Upper East Side uh, was the fall of 2011. You know, it was basically like Union Square is going great. You know, how can we recreate that kind of feel where you get hopefully a mix of residential, some office, whether it's a hospital up by Lenox Hill on the Upper East Side, or there's Hudson Square down at the West Village. And so we felt those locations were sort of proxies for Union Square. Right, but then we opened and we weren't that busy. We were wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we were wrong. We just took us a while to be right. And that was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, Union, I think Union Square was, you know, really busy at that point. And so we opened the West Village, not that far away. We're in the center of our own universe. Okay, this is obviously, you know, big news for the city. It's a bigger um, location, so it's going to start off doing bigger volume. Right, and we also we built it out with you know every bell and whistle, every little thing we didn't have in the first location. You know, like all of them we have this year, and it's going to be so great when we're super slammed to have all these things. And then opened it and just weren't that busy. I mean, you know, some students were coming over, we had some action, but not like Union Square. And I think we realized we had to kind of like market ourselves. I didn't know how to do that. I was down seven Avenue, housing handouts. We did some handouts. We we printed some handouts. You know, designed some stuff. Uh, just saying we're, we're here, we exist. Which is not a ridiculous thing to hand somebody. People were not like on Google Maps, like put on that money. You know, since 2011, like we literally, like, we you know, printed the postcard with like the. Well, I, I remember one of my psychology classes, there was an experiment on like getting people to like take action. And it was something random to like go get a, you know, information on like STDs or something. It was some kind of <laughs> collegiate student information session. And they had a ton more suggestions than they did a map. On the postcard, and when they didn't, the control group or whatever, it's like we should definitely have a map on there. It was just like a little zoom in of the West Village, like a star, right? And leaving Carmine, and then we were out there. Yeah, and that, <laughs> that helped. That had some impact. That had some impact from that for sure. 
but the, I mean, the bigger you know growth just took time. It just took time to build that audience and you know convert regular one at a time, one burrito at a time. We use that phrase a lot, and like it's really true. Every single cast is an opportunity to build a regular or, or not. And, and as you alluded to earlier, you know, regulars are the bedrock and the foundation of any successful food business. You know, almost any successful business, right. and uh, you know you develop and you cultivate regular base by focusing deeply uh, and you know nailing it. Right, but we, we started doing stuff too. We said we wouldn't really do delivery. We started delivering. We, we didn't work catering was not on our radar. We started catering, and those are not growing into really significant parts of the business. And the, that was kind of driven by needing to find ways to add revenue and, mm. and awareness. Totally. Um, and Upper East Side, similar. Open up, uh, collective yards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we thought, we thought the West Village was, was bad. Right, Upper East Side also was was quiet, and like Upper East Side was almost even more so. Just like, or maybe a little more culturally conservative. Like they want to see you be there for two years before they try you out. Kind of thing. And, and if you, uh, they don't try you out, then you're not going to make it. That's what I say. Yeah, that's what do. And and then same thing with marketing on there, local marketing. Walk, you know, talking to uh, local like schools. Or you know, the doorman. So the doorman yeah, really? buildings, yeah, oh, just yeah. anything we can think of. And it's easy, even now. I'm remembering stuff talking to doorman, big buildings. I forgot we did yeah. that. And, and and there's a constant danger of forgetting hard stuff that you did to get to where you are like not cool. as you go forward. And stuff is like kind of not. We wouldn't do that anymore. But obviously, that was right. really important in the early days. Totally, but yeah, it's like again, like the school kind of reference. where like you're. The first test, you study really hard, you get an A. Second test, you're like, I'm so good at this. You get a you know, C because you forgot how hard you studied for the first test. And then you remember. I think that's part of the story. Right. So you now have, how many stores do you guys have? We have 20 locations, um, 16 in New York, four, uh, two of those, excuse me, in Brooklyn. And then we have four locations in Chicago. Wow. And opening number 21 on Madison between 40th and 41st on the weekend half. 13, uh, $5 burrito. Nice. So it sounds like early days you had your thumb on stuff. Like you were able to really control and watch how the stores worked and operated, and you're able to make little tweaks. How do you replicate that when you've got this many locations? You can't do it. Was it like a couple of specific hires or like playbook stuff? Or how do you duplicate? It's crazy to me. Every hire goes to us as a key hire. That's well said. That's true, but but there were in addition to that, there were key hires. You know, just hiring operational leaders that just had real experience. You know, we felt we always use the expression we have enough inexperience to go around. Right. So the whole company, yeah, we got we got enough experience for the whole company right here. So we can we can just let everyone else be experienced and you know actually know what they're doing, and and hopefully through some good combination of working together, you know, they'll be able to kind of draw on their, their knowledge and insight and, and we'll be able to draw on our lack of knowledge to like challenge assumptions that maybe shouldn't be held um, and arrive at a good conclusion about how to do stuff. I think also we just, you know, we didn't think we were better than anyone at anything. Pretty much weren't. So like, it was no problem like delegating stuff or like, it's not like I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll just, I'll handle the grill. I'm, I'm the guest, the, the best person to grill chicken. No, I'm probably the worst at it. So like empowering. Yeah, right. Just empowering and, and kind of not thinking we were better and, at doing stuff. You know, maybe I'm just kind of thinking this is you were mentioning trust earlier. I mean, we have this bedrock, such deep trust in each other. And maybe that permeated from us to throughout the organization, just trusting people. There's a culture of, of trust and uh, you know, belief that people can execute. Yeah, but it obviously, trust and verify is the expression. Trust is earned. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But like, so we certainly invested a ton in training. Right? We realized like half of what we do is kind of is in the education space. And so we've gotten really into training, specifically this kind of learning management system we use where you make a bunch of video content. It's all embedded in there. And you, know, you kind of pass tests and, and watch videos and prove that you've learned it. And then get certification. Sure, get certified on stuff. And like, mm-hmm. A lot of rigorous kind of steps of, of training and, and verification that are really important. And and videos are fun. That's a cool thing. Like, we're like, you know, you can shoot a video on your iPhone. It looks great. It sounds fine. And what a great way to teach teach how to make chips mm. with a video instead of like writing about it or talking about it. Just show it. Mm. And so and a lot of what we do is so kind of physical and hands-on. 
uh, that watching somebody do it as opposed to reading about it is right. a lot more effective. Cool. Totally. So training's huge. But, you know, also, like, yes, we're like, we're bigger now, but 20 locations, you can still kind of get your arms around it. You can, you know, be everywhere on some reasonable kind of frequency. I was rolling burritos yesterday. Right. Totally. And we're in there. And, you know, uh, we're both taking catering orders tomorrow. And, like, we still do stuff in the field. And I just think, you know, we, we don't want to be any bigger than we are. We don't want to be any more. We want to be trying to act smaller than we are mm-hmm. culturally. And so we just don't want to. We're not ever kind of trying to look ahead to, like, place where we can be more removed. Quite, quite find ways we can yeah, stay closer. That's really interesting. I love that. I'll finish with two questions, which are going to go a little bit higher level. I'm an essentialist. So I believe that, I truly believe that like 99% of what we all do, it doesn't really matter. Like we're all kind of doing the same stuff and it all cancels out. But there's 1% of things that you do that drive everything. Um, has there been anything that has been in that 1% category? So like anything that you've done that you think has had just an outsized role in Dos Toros now having this many locations being this successful and delicious? Me, I would probably say, go back to what I just said, which is um, still rolling burritos on the service line. You know, not a lot. Maybe it's an hour uh, during the lunch rush once or twice a week, bouncing around between locations um, and just staying. That's, you know, that's how I keep an eye on our product and on, you know, whether it's a, a new pop-up foil that we're using to roll our burritos in and whether it's you know, 64 gauge or 66 gauge thickness when making sure that it's thick enough that when you ride on it with a sharpie on the foil it doesn't break through but it is and just like the littlest details of uh, our product uh, i can kind of in real time work with those in the field uh and being there with the teams i think other other companies don't don't do that they get further and further from their product cool right and then, you know, no matter how many locations we have it's just that number times x and X is the this kind of concept, the four wall concept of you know the, the stuff, how, how we do what we do, and I think yeah, staying close to it is yeah has been an enormous thing, and you can just verify. You can spend so much time in a room talking about something, or you can spend half the time just doing that thing and, and verifying what is or isn't working, and seeing really quickly what what's a good or bad idea, and that's the most fun. <laughs> I, th- I think also I. I think we're just inherently kind of, not to use a, like a tech word, but like kind of disruptive because we're just outsiders and kind of embrace our outsiderness and just are always open to doing something differently or thinking about it differently. And going to a fault at times, you can overcomplicate something that can be very simple and sort of, ooh, there's a smarter way to do this. Um, but we just are always challenging the status quo, especially for our industry of how you can build a culture or build a restaurant or, you know, or design a, a marketing campaign or things like that. Right. We just kind of, yeah, question. We get that this is why something has been done this way in this industry for however many years, but why? And, uh, you know, and have things changed? Can we, you know, re-examine this? Right. And we're also pretty, pretty good at saying no. We talk about the power of no. <laughs> <laughs> That's another positive way. You say no so that you can say yes. You know, it frees you to focus on essential things. And we just are saying no to a whole bunch of stuff. And over the years, a whole bunch of things, proposals kind of come our way and and ideas. And just, you know, unless we think it's, we just can't get away from it. It's so compelling. We just say no. And you can just blame it on the other brother. Mm. (laughs) I wanted this. this. Yeah, it's just like, mm, that guy, he's tough. And, uh, (laughs) That is very true. <laughs> I like that. Um, as you guys were talking, I kept on thinking of that saying when you were mentioning that you were kind of outsiders to the industry, the saying of like, it wasn't a fish that discovered water. I think that's pretty sort of potentially relevant to you guys. So I do want to ask the last question that we have asked all of our founders, which is if you were going to start a taco truck, how would you approach it? I'm trying to think of a way to make it a little bit tougher for you guys. So I think it's my, my <laughs> don't worry, plenty of jump questions. Okay, we'll just do it then. I mean, first thing that comes to mind for me is, is limiting choices and limiting options. And um, we actually um, we don't serve fish or shrimp tacos in our uh, taco days, and I I would do that. Hmm. Hmm. That's all I have to say about that. Great. I mean. Yeah, so right, we super laser focused. Try, just try and pare it down to the fewest possible items that you're serving. I would go to a whole bunch of other ta- trucks, taco and otherwise, mm. 
and you know see what's cool about their service style, their design, and and where they park. And not to, not to uh, to talk down what you were saying earlier about the pasta concept that you were talking about. You know, you were like, it's awesome. A bunch of sauces and a bunch of pastas, and you can combine them in any way you like. And I feel that a lot of fast cat, a lot of concepts are kind of going in that direction or have, and it can be big trouble to, uh, sure to have. And like when you think about it, there's actually like seven million two hundred eighty thousand permutations of like ways to order from this menu and pairing it down. And we have that though. You can just make a lot of different items to be served. You can mix together. Bang. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but yes, not like that. Not like that. No, no. We we're hugely about limiting choice. Yeah. And making the hard decision to not have the two options, but just have the one option. Mm. Whenever we think we can do that. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. And I, I think a lot about parking with this topic. <laughs> <laughs> Where am I going to park? Where do I want to be at different times a day? Where am I going to park overnight? Right, overnight. Ooh, that's a big one. Um, where can I find a used truck? You know, how can I outfit it kind of properly with equipment that's making too much money on that? I think you'd want to like take a karate class. I've, I've heard it gets pretty intense out there with trucks. Yeah, right? with other um, trucks. Other truck owners will fight you. Turf force. Yeah, turf force with parking stuff. So that's an issue. Um, get, get your Twitter feed cracking. <laughs> okay. Everyone wants to know about where you be. I think that's a cool way to think. I think like founders are constantly thinking through this stuff and that's how you'd approach it. And I think that's awesome. Like focused location. It's all stuff that is relevant to what you guys have done and been successful with. Cool. This has been so awesome. I really appreciate it. I could not recommend, I mean, I'm getting so hungry. Just list like when you mentioned the tacos before the Dos Toros tacos, I was like, Oh my God, I need to get a taco. Everyone listening to this should go to Dos Toros immediately. What's the best thing you got on the menu? You know, we, we like to recommend the carnitas burrito. We feel it's kind of our signature. The carnitas is a uh, labor of love, and we think, yeah, pretty differentiated. Yeah, and uh, make sure you throw some guacamole on that thing. And, and some house sauce. Yeah, sauce, for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Idea to Startup, a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. Check out gettacklebox.com and click on podcast to see the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes. Also, as always, shoot me an email at brian at gettacklebox.com with any questions, with people I should interview, with questions about your love life, whatever you want. All right. Have a great week.